number three. News Talk 1110-993 WBT, The Pete Callender Show. I'm The Pete, and you can email me, Pete, at thepetecallendershow.com. The phone numbers are 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. And um, we're talking about this piece, how the, or sorry, how is the narrative enforced? And it's written by David Strom at hotair.com, and it actually ties into another piece um, by Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine. And it has to do with um, how the narrative, you know, capital T, capital N narrative, how the narrative, how is this developed, and why does it get adopted so uniformly, so quickly in our society, particularly among a lot of people on the left, whether it's don't wear masks and then do wear masks or uh, lockdowns work and then they don't work and we never we never said that and, you know, well, or, uh, uh, you know, it was it was Donald Trump that caused uh, that uh, crazy guy to attack Paul Pelosi. Right. These things, that, as soon as the talking point goes out or the journalist email goes out, it's like this uniform adoption. There doesn't seem to be debate among the professorial class, the academic, the the for and I hate this term because I don't think they are, but the elites. I prefer the managerial class. And this is the subject of this piece by David Strom, and he uses a lot of uh, quotes from Jeffrey Tucker, who was the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. And the the professional class, the managerial class, right? They manage things. They uh, they produce and distribute our news, they, our entertainment. They run corporations. They inhabit all levels of government. They run our schools and universities in general. They're the most visible and Powerful people in the society, almost everybody who is white-collar aspires to join this club. So why then do they all seem to be saying the same thing all the time? How does that happen? So Tucker submits that it's opportunism or careerism. And it particularly applies to journalists and intellectuals. Their career paths absolutely require compliance with prevailing narratives. Any deviation could lead to potential doom for them. The spirit of going along is the driving force of everything they do. And then he talks about how in both academia and in journalism, if you don't play along, if you don't adopt the prevailing uh, views, the, the conventional wisdom or whatever the latest fad is, if you don't go along with these things, then you could get a bad reputation. You can get blackballed. And if you've been working your entire life, towards a position, a bigger market, a bigger college, tenure, whatever, you're working towards these goals, and then all of a sudden you say the wrong thing, and now you're fired, you get canceled, you can't get a job. Right? That's a very real risk assessment that people are making at some level, whether it's conscious or not, who knows. But I can tell you, as one who has worked in media in this uh, this managerial class for 22 years or whatever it's been now. I can tell you, I, I have come to points in the road where you have to make these types of decisions. They're not easy decisions. And um, I've just been guided by like, I got to be able to look at myself in the mirror every day. I, I, I got to be able to live with my, with my decision. 
and uh, I don't want to have regrets. I don't want it eating up at me. And here's the other thing. I got this advice from John Hancock a long time ago when um, I started doing fill-in work here on WBT. It would have been, I don't know, 2007 or 2008, I want to say. And um, you know, he said, just you know, be yourself and be honest. And if you change your mind on something, then you know, be honest in why you did. But if you lie and you're not honest... The talk radio audience is going to sniff that out pretty quickly. And, they, and and it's true. People remember things that I have said over the course of my career that I don't remember saying. So I just kind of, I've made it a point, like, I'm going to say stuff that I believe is true, and this way it's not going to ever be a problem for me. Like if someone says, oh, you said this, and I'm like, yeah, oh, I yeah, because I believe that's true. And then I know if someone says something that I don't believe is true, and they said, oh, Pete, you said this. And I said, well, I, no, I didn't say that because I tell you what I believe, right? So why do a lot of these people make these determinations? Well, because you don't want to get off of the, the, the career trajectory that you're on because then there's no future. And the reason for that is that your skills are not fungible. In other words, they don't transfer to very many other things. They just don't. So you got to go along to get along. Not because anybody's forcing you to, but you're doing it out of self-interest. I had a decision point. I've told this story before on the air. I had a decision point in 2016 with the presidential race. And I still get messages from people. I still get attacked for this. But I wouldn't choose any other path. During the primary, I did not want to see Donald Trump be the nominee. And I lobbied very, very hard, and I argued with everybody that would call to defend Donald Trump, and I was not going to do it. And when the election rolled around, I did not vote for him. I didn't vote for Hillary either, but I didn't vote for him. I voted for Gary Johnson. And then 2020 rolled around, and I left the race blank. And I recognized that that was a risk to take and to tell people that this was my view on it. But I've never had to worry when I, whenever I get people that come at me, oh, you're just a Trumper. Well, I know that's not true, <laughs> right? I literally risked my career in order to say what my opinion was about Donald Trump and to have those discussions and arguments. Now, here's the thing. When Donald Trump became president and he started doing stuff that I liked, I supported the things that he did that I liked. I also criticized the things that he did I did not like. And this is why I think I, I see so many people that I, I say this often, right? Trump has broken their brains. Pro and con. You know, the, he's not God and he's not the devil, right? He's just a, he's a human being. He's a person and he's got flaws and he's got things that he does well and things he doesn't. And everybody wants to view everything through this prism of Trump. I've never seen anything like it except for Barack Obama, which a lot of our friends on the left, for some reason, don't remember. I do. I remember the cult of personality around Obama. In fact, I saw him out on the campaign trail just the other day, just this weekend, yelling and screaming about something. Heck of an orator. Don't get me wrong. Gives good speech. But, um, yeah, he was out on the campaign trail, and they're, they're just eating it up. Eating it up. And remember the chants? Kind of terrifying at the time. If you don't like what the guy represents and the policies he wants to impress upon everyone, and they start chanting, Obama, 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 right? That's a cult of personality as well, folks. 
I just I, I find it comical that like it's like the Spider Man meme where the two Spider Man cartoon characters are pointing at each other as to who's the real Spider Man. <laughs> it's come to life. So a lot of these people in the managerial class they got to comply. If they in their own hearts dissent, they keep their heads down because otherwise they're going to be washing dishes for a living. The skills they spent decades building are worthless outside their chosen profession. Who wants a reporter except a publication, right? The people who are responsible for shaping the public mind end up as the most craven class of obsequious simps on the planet. We want these people to be brave and independent. We need them to be. But in practice, they are the complete opposite. All because their professions are non-fungible. Same is true for medical professions, uh, professionals, sadly, as well. Which is why so few objected as their own industry was converted into an in- instrument of tyranny over three years. Think about people who in the last uh, few years have been uh, the tellers of truth. Very often, they were retired, they were independent, they had a solid source of income from family, or they were wise investors. They wrote for an independent newsletter or Substack, or they had a podcast. They don't have bosses or career tracks. It's only these people who are in a position to say what's true. The fungibility of professions is a major indicator of whether you can trust what the person is saying or doing. Those who are only interested in protecting a paycheck and a single job, clinging to it for dear life for fear of a future of poverty and homelessness, they're compromised. That pertains to many of what are called white-collar jobs which is why you can trust your hairstylist more than a professor at the local university. She's free to speak her mind. Him, not so much. And all of this applies to everyone in government, obviously, but it also pertains to large corporations, mainstream religions, and central banks. The bitter irony is that there doesn't need to be a conspiracy to destroy the world. Most people in the position to stop it just refuse to step in simply because they put their professional or financial interests above the moral obligation to tell the truth. They go along to get along simply because they have to. Self-interest. It's what makes the world go round. Oh, wow. Fetterman's hometown paper just endorsed Mehmet Oz for U.S. Yikes. How bad is it? Um, sorry, I was just checking out a uh, an update here. All right, so uh, talking about this, uh, this narrative crafting, right? Mentioned it uh, somewhat yesterday, but the narrative crafting around... Uh, professional managerial class, quote, elites, and how they are motivated by self-interest to adopt whatever that narrative is and then attack others, silence others. And the message goes out that you risk career suicide. And if you don't have skills that are fungible, that are transferable to some other uh, profession, you're screwed. And basically, this is like every white-collar job, okay? Which leads me to a piece written by Jonathan Chait today over at New York Magazine. Progressive America needs a glasnost. It's an old Soviet throwback term. Anyway, um, last week, Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple wrote a column 
revisiting the New York Times' sacking of its opinion editor, James Bennett, in 2020. Do you remember this? New York Times agreed to run an op-ed written by Tom Cotton, U.S. Senator Tom Cotton. And Tom Cotton was advocating for the National Guard to be deployed to prevent rioting and looting. That's what the op-ed was about. And for that, the uh, for, for daring to publish this piece, the New York Times' opinion editor, James Bennett, was fired. Why? Because of outrage from the staff at the New York Times. Now, Bennett had made some mistakes during his tenure, but he was fired in response to the mad staffers that his page had published an op-ed by Tom Cotton. So this or last week, Eric Wemple at the Washington Post, media critic guy, he writes this piece revisiting this whole affair. And Jonathan Chait says that uh, Eric Wemple's piece is notable for two reasons. Number one, um, it establishes his reporting establishes that a fact checking exercise that The New York Times used as a pretext for withdrawing the, the op ed. It was farcical or is a lie. It was a lie. The op-ed had already been fact-checked before it got published. So then the New York Times makes up this, you know, fake second fact-check in order to come up with some reasons to support the decision that the publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, had already made, right? So they were just kind of reverse engineering a way to take the op-ed down. So that's the first reason why it's notable. But the Times uh, was inventing new standards on the fly, It was obvious that they were doing this at the time. But why didn't Eric Wemple make this point then? See, this gets to the the point about the narrative and careerism or opportunism. Why didn't Eric Wemple make this point at the time when it actually would have mattered? This is the second and more interesting point or revelation that came from Wemple's column last week. He confesses that, quote, His posture was one of cowardice and mid-career risk management. Wemple may be alone in publishing this admission, but he is not alone in believing it. A lot of people have shared similar beliefs with Jonathan Chait privately, especially in the summer of 2020. Wow, what was going on? Summer of 2020. Summer of love. It is an unhealthy culture that forces people to suppress their doubts and mouth platitudes for fear of losing their livelihoods. Right? This is why we saw streets painted with things like defund police. Right? Paid for by taxpayers. Right? City governments that that actually fund and run the police agencies in their jurisdictions were paying people to go paint or allowing people at the very least to go paint defund the police on the city streets paid for by taxpayers. When I stumbled on the news of David Shore's firing in 2020, one thing that struck me was that nobody wanted to talk about it. Chait writes, since these purges occur at institutions whose staff are overwhelmingly on the left, a lot of the victims in these cases have beliefs that place them somewhere from the, you know, center left to the left of the political spectrum. And here's the thing. They don't really want to be famous for being a victim of cancel culture. Because 
I would submit a lot of them have engaged in the behavior to cancel others along the way. And becoming a martyr on Fox News compounds the social death that a lot of these victims experience. That's what they, they say. They have a, quote, social death because now nobody will be friends with them. Nobody will associate with them. See, this is something people on the right really don't understand, uh, don't, uh, uh, not understand, but like, I don't think we appreciate the kind of social death that lefties experience. If they're surrounded in their echo chamber by people that are all of the left, they do something wrong, one thing bad, and that's it. Like, dead. You got no more friends. You got no more colleagues. Like, every, you're a pariah. And over on the right, I'm not aware, really, of a similar situation that occurs. Because even now, as I mentioned earlier, I just went through and talked about 2016 and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and I'm still here. I didn't get canceled by the right. I, 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 I don't know what else to point to as a better example. What Wemple's confession reveals, though, is that these purges have a multiplier effect. For every person humiliated or fired for a small or non-existent defense, a lot of people are going to refuse to criticize even transparently absurd left-wing pieties. Right? And I would submit this is how we got to where we are now. Because you got a lot of people on the left that have fallen under this spell and they can't criticize because they don't want to risk career or social death. And so they just keep, oh, okay, drag queen story hour? Yes, please, more of that. Okay, you want it in the kid, uh, the kindergarten class? Oh, absolutely. You want to teach my first grader all about sex with uh, animals? Yeah, you go right ahead. Like, at what point, when do you stop that? When does somebody advance an idea that you say, that's too far? Right? This is a question for the left. The right has already answered these questions. On the culture war topics? Now, the right, I think, has some questions to answer uh, amongst ourselves about Donald Trump and how far are you willing to go and that sort of stuff. Absolutely. But th- this type of uh, cancel culture, peer pressure, social death aspect, this is um, this is something for the left to consider. You guys are going to have to grapple with this, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, so keep in mind, Jonathan Shade at New York Magazine, he's not exactly a uh, right-winger. But he's revisiting this uh, the firing of the New York Times' opinion page editor, and um, I think somebody else, uh, David Shore, I think is the other one. Um, and they were, you know, they were run out of their jobs by angry staffers of the left, right, of the political left, and Jade says that this has this uh, this has this herd mentality, this peer pressure kind of effect. Where, and he says, Eric Wemple, writing at the Washington Post, admitted as much, and kudos to him for admitting it. But he confesses that his posture to not come to the defense for free speech, free press, like to not rise in defense of the New York Times editorial page editor who simply, or opinion page editor, who simply posted an op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton. That's all he did. And Tom Cotton argued that we should deploy the National Guard to make the city safe during the race riots and the George Floyd fiery but mostly peaceful riots of 2020, Summer of Love. And the, the New York Times staffers were so outraged over that, they got the guy fired. 
And Wemple says he did not come to the defense of this fired editor. And he said, my posture was one of cowardice and mid-career risk management. Jonathan Chait says the motive for many progressives to follow stifling conventions was sympathetic, you could say, right? If you believe systemic racism and inequality are the greatest crisis in America, which I do, he says, and you also believe the racism of the Republican Party is far more dangerous than any excesses on the left, which I also do, then you might hesitate to admit to anything that might be used by Republicans to discredit the cause of racial justice. Yet that hesitation allows the most unreasonable people on the left to rope the whole progressive movement into indefensible and self-discrediting positions. What is he talking about here? Read between the lines, right? What's he talking about? He's saying that the defund the police was a terrible slogan. (laughs) That's what he's saying. That, oh, we got dragged over here because we wouldn't stand up for our liberal values. And, And that may be true, by the way. But this idea that you got dragged over there, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not. I, I think there are a lot of people in your party that are totally fine with that. He says the George Floyd protests are hardly the only subject for which this dynamic has prevailed. Progressives decided that the hypothesis that COVID-19 may have originated in a lab rather than in the wet market. Right? They said that was racist. Remember that? We couldn't even call it the Wuhan flu. We had to change the whole way we, we label everything. We went to the Roman letters, or Greek letters, rather. We went to the Greek alphabet, except for G. We, we couldn't say XI or XI. We couldn't say XI, because that says G, and that's the president of China, and that's racist again. Look at that. Although nobody talked about culturally appropriating the entire Greek alphabet. I wonder why. Weird. Journalists at mainstream organs followed this convention, essentially turning a scientific question into a political one. When institutions adopt illiberal norms of debate that make it impossible to challenge an accusation of racism or sexism, they open themselves up for abuse. Right? So that's Jonathan Shade. So maybe, maybe we get some sort of self-examination by, uh, okay, yeah, no, no, probably not. But maybe, uh, you know me, I'm an optimist. All right, let's go over here to Mike. Welcome to the program. Hello, Mike. Hello, Pete Callender, Mike Daisley here. I think I'm an optimist, too. Oh, Mike, how are you doing? I am well. It's been a while since I've been back in the studios doing an election with Al Gardner and Al, Al. and all that. Yeah, kind of Al's stuff. no longer here, my friend. Well, he's long gone. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, suffice it to say the station has changed <laughs> a bit. But congratulations on you. I've not seen, I heard, not had a chance actually to congratulate you on your new on your new spot. And well, thank you. Big deal. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, happy Indeed. to be back. And I'm happy that you actually, uh, right before the break, you know, in talking, in addition to talking about the left having to examine itself, you did put out there briefly that you know the right has some self examination that it should be doing as well. Mm-hmm. And I and I took that as an invitation, and I'm glad that the producer accepted it to you know for us to maybe go back and forth a little bit because it seems to me that all of us would do well to see some really good critical self-examination and um i'll i'll start with the left um that i agree that um uh, there are those that are on the far left that are very vocal 
um, uh, in terms of, frankly, wanting to stifle some debate with which they disagree. However, I think, and you guys are good at it. When I say you guys, I mean talk show hosts in general. Certainly there are many on your station that do this. Um, that will take an exaggeration, something that's small, and make it seem as if it is the norm of the left. That the, you know, the Daisleys of the world and, oh, fill in any blank you want, the Roy Coopers, the Jeff Jacksons, oh, they're all like that. And you take an extreme and then try to make it the norm. And that's one of the things that most disappoints me when I hear... um, I'm sorry I have failed you. Well, (laughs) I'll... You're, you're, I, I will say you're an offender, Pete, but you're not the oh, I, hey, offender. Look, so uh, just be, hey, I, Mike, I understand. Pointing yeah. out the similarities of what you deem to be far left with what you deem to be not far left and pointing out how that Venn diagram is virtually identical, I understand why that would cause discomfort. Absolutely. I, uh, absolutely. I, because in, while you exist on that side of the spectrum, you see all of the different shades of gray. But what Jonathan Chait's piece lays bare and what we have witnessed over the last few years is that the shades of gray that are more in the center, they go to the further edge of the, uh, of the political spectrum. They go over there very willingly, very often, and if they disagree, they don't say so. I don't know that I, that I agree with that because, I mean, I'm, I, for instance, I'm a case in point. And I think, frankly, in my dealing with Democrats, which I do a lot, I am much more the norm than what you know you're trying to to paint here. That I am much more willing to um, disagree with a an extreme far left proposal that wants to, for instance, shut down and pull a speaker out of a you know a a, um, a, a form in a college or something like that. Unless it is something like, you know, inciting violence or something that is clearly a racist point of view, then, you know, I think there is certainly room for good conservative uh, voices to come into what might be a otherwise liberal environment. I've got no problem with that. No, that's very all. kind of you. I, It'd be, uh, no, of that's you. very you kind of you to allow a conservative you. voice to appear on a campus. Yeah, I think I'm, I think my view is, is is fairly normal. And again, uh, conservative voices, but voices of of hate groups are two different things. All right. So a, a, a hate group spokesperson, you know, would not be welcome. Um, I'll use my alma mater, uh, you know, Davidson. That's what's a what's mater. a hate group? Right. So, what, no. What's a, what? What is a hate group? Define for me what a hate group is. Um, one that one incites violence, and two um, uh, has as one of its platform to reinstate a white Christian nation. And is there a particular I, organization that is that is for that that does that? Are you talking about the Proud Boys? And there are like seventeen members. <laughs> they're, they're a bit more than that. And that's, really. that's a good example of what I'm talking about, Pete. Is now, that it? Say, 
uh, only 17 members of the Proud Boys, yeah. when in fact, you know, the organization is much more widespread than that. Is it as widespread and as Antifa? Was that? Is it as widespread as Antifa? Well, again, there is a, you know, Antifa being like a card-carrying organization. I, uh, no, I'm just asking from a numbers perspective. You said it's you said it's more widespread, so I'm trying to get a handle on how widespread it is. Well, my my main point. I'm 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 not trying to avoid your question. Oh, I'm that's what it sounds like. Get, hold well, hold on. I'm just trying not to get far afield from what. I'll tell you what, Mike. I'm going to put you, Mike. I got to go to traffic. I'm going to put you on hold. You think you, you kind of come up with an answer? How widespread is the Proud Boys? How, how big of an organization is it, and is it comparable to Antifa? And I'll bring you back on. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. All right, we were talking earlier with Mike Daisley. Mike, I forgot what title you used to have, or maybe you still do. I don't know. It's been so long. Uh, was it is it Mecklenburg County? Were you the lawyer for the Democratic Party of the county? For, for, for a time, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was, they, they was out. was all volunteer or sort of uh, ad hoc as needed. I don't think I ever had that title. I, I think what uh, Al Gardner and Bo Thompson used to describe me, Democratic activist and former oh. congressional candidate, Mike Davis. There you go. Um, all right. Well, there you go. So uh, all right. Well, I, I mean, I, honestly, I, th- I think I think my title was probably a little bit better, just a little, you know, former well, lawyer for so, the Democratic right. Party. But anyway, uh, but so I asked you during, before the break, um, because you mentioned the Proud Boys, and I offered them up as because I'm trying to figure out like because I think words have meaning, and I'm trying I try to get at what people are trying to convey. So uh, when you say you know white nationalist and I've, Christian nationalist or whatever the term of the day is, and I uh, said so it was like the Proud Boys, and you said yes, and then I said there was like 17 of them, and you took umbrage at that. You're like there are way more. It's widespread, and I said is it as widespread as Antifa? That's all. I'm just asking: is it are there as many Proud Boys in your opinion? I'm not asking for a census count, but do you believe there are as many Proud Boys as there are Antifa? Hi, and I'm going to get to the answer, but uh, bringing it more into the context of what we were talking about, which is, again, um, you know, what sort of groups, is it just conservative talk that's being stifled on college campuses, that sort of stuff, or as, is it, as I would like to say, that's an exaggeration, what gets pulled off of college campus or hate groups, or that's, that's not, but that, but Mike, like, that's like not the true. Proud Mike, like that's the Proud Mike, that's not true. There have been conservative. They just, they just, they just ran out the professor Ilya Shapiro. Like, mm-hmm. Give me a break. You've got, you got, you now have Republican judges that are refusing to take on any clerks from Yale because of the school's position on free speech, which is to not allow conservatives on campus to give speeches. And this is not Proud Boy stuff. Do you think Proud Boys are getting onto the campus at Yale? It's not happening. So like, uh, that's why I'm, I'm asking, like, this Proud Boy versus Antifa comparison, are they as widespread or not? Okay. And, and you would say that Proud Boys does not equal conservative. Proud Boys is a different thing altogether, Correct. Correct. Okay, and what I'm saying is when you talk about conservative voices coming off of campus, those are the ones that are much closer to the Proud Boys than they are to, oh, I don't know. Um, um, so what's a white nationalist? Tell me what is a white nationalist and how is that a conservative position? Go. No, I'm, not, I'm saying it's not. 
That's what I'm saying. But you're saying the only people that are getting pulled off campus are the Proud Boys, and Mike, that's just not true. Mike, would I mean, or do you follow this topic closely? Do you follow the the number of cancellations of conservative speakers on college camp high? Uh, do you follow that? I do not as much as you do, and I'll be the first to admit that. Okay. And, I, and I'm not trying to dodge your question on that. We'll get back to the Proud Boys. I just want to set it in context uh, that the reason that we all be- began this discussion is the need, as you say, for self-examination. Right, which is what I'm trying to do with the Antifa comparison of population. That's why I keep asking you this question. Okay, and and I will I will say... I mean, that Antifa, frankly, is larger than the Proud Boys because Antifa is a movement. It's not an organization. It's not they don't have membership cards in it. Now, there may be some, um, you know, f- uh, folks in, in a hierarchy, that sort of stuff. But there are. I believe I, I put forward and I feel free to push back. I think to equate. Antifa with the Proud Boys is a false equivalent. Why? One, the former is a movement. The former is uh, a, a, a more movement of, of individuals and some groups, whereas the Proud Boys is an entity under themselves. Right. So uh, I would disagree with you. I've read a lot about Antifa over the last few years, and Antifa does have an organization. You may not like to admit that, but that is the truth. They have there are cells they have, that operate. There is a hierarchy. They have uh, they have a philosophy, and you can you can say that that the, the way they operate uh, in in the in the shadows and uh, and behind the curtains, like you can say that that makes them different than the Proud Boys. I disagree. I judge them by their actions, and when I see them on the streets looting, burning, acting violently calling everybody that disagrees with them a fascist and thereby justifying their violence against other human beings. No, that's that th- th- they are the fascists, Mike, and that is an organization. They are no different than the Proud Boys. And the fact that they fight the Proud Boys all the time seems to me to be pretty clear that when they all show up with the same kind of weaponry to engage in the fighting, it looks like they're pretty much, you know, two sides of the same coin, you know? That's just me. But we can agree uh, to disagree. Uh, again, I, 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 I contend that's a, a bit of a false equivalence. But, but let's, I would highly recommend you read some books on uh, Antifa. I can recommend them to you, but i got to run. I do appreciate the call, and it's very good to hear your voice again, Mike. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Ruth, I apologize I can't get to your call. But shoot me an email, Pete, at thepetecalendarshow.com. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>